0: Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we wrap up our series on Reformation with an examination of the Protestant Reformation. We need to be clear that we don't claim to be any better than our Catholic counterparts. We are well aware that we have much to work on in our sanctification. Additionally, we recognize that not all Catholics adhere to every theological tenet of Roman Catholicism. And yet there is a stark contrast between the foundations of our denominational faiths that finds its root in the theology of the Reformers to reclaim the true gospel of Christ in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Thanks for sticking with us throughout this series and joining us today as we return again to God's Word in our journey towards reformation. Good morning. As we mentioned earlier, this, marks, uh, this past week marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Why is it we're not all Catholic? Why, why is that? Uh, there, there was a time at which that's all there was. Uh, Roman Catholicism was all there was for the church. And then near the 12th century, there was a split between those in the West and those in the East, which become uh, sometimes called the Greek Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, over, over one, of the, one of the elements within the, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed concerning the Holy Spirit, and the church split there. And then a little bit later, once again, the church split again in what is known as the Protestant Reformation. So why is it you're not Catholic? I think some people think when you ask that question, it has more to do with Uh, Some of the ritualistic, some of the uh, patterns and forms of Catholicism, you know, I don't care to uh, uh, confess my sins to a priest, maybe, or or I don't like to pray to Mary or pray to the saints, or maybe it's uh, you have trouble with some of the theological tenets like um, the assumption about the assumption of Mary or the uh, infallibility of the Pope. What I want to do today is to have you to understand that though you might disagree with those things, there is something else that's fundamental when it comes to the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. It is the mark by which the Protestant Reformation was founded on. It's nothing short of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. This morning I'm titling this sermon simply The Reformation. What we're going to do is, is walk through what becomes the, the five marks of Protestantism where they separate from Catholicism. In doing so, we're going to look at a few passages primarily, primary to our study. It will be Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We're going to seek to answer a question this morning. What is the gospel? Could you answer that? If I said uh, quiz time, write down on the back of your sermon notes, what is the gospel? Maybe some of you might write Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but that's not the gospel. Those are the gospels. But what is the message of Jesus? What is the message of the gospels? Because if we can articulate what the message is, it will frame for us the boundaries around which we need to protect it. Such that if we leave the gospel, we're essentially playing with fire. You ever tell that to your kids? Don't play with fire, right? Don't play. Why? Why shouldn't you play with fire? Yeah, it's dangerous. Um, You could get burned. Your property could be destroyed. The element of justification is, for our faith, the key item. Such that if you lose the doctrine of justification, you lose the church. Do everybody understand this? We're not talking about should we get the organ or bring drums or the structure of our... We're not talking about that. We're talking about the very center, the heartbeat of the church. In a theological sense, so I have to ask for your... Um, continued attention this morning because we're going to kind of dig into things a little bit today. But I just want you to know that the stakes could not be higher at this point, all right? The doctrine of justification of faith was so very vital to the church that men and women died for it. They refused to bend the knee to what they understood to be a different distortion of God's word, of the gospel. In doing so, they were willing to to have their heads lopped off, willing to be burned at the stake for the sake of the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, I'd like us to begin, even though we're going to turn to Romans, I'd like us to begin in Galatians, the book of Galatians. Turn there with me, uh, chapter 1. Paul is writing to a um, geographically widespread group of churches that live in Galatia. They're, they're scattered around, so this is a letter that's going to travel from church to church, and he's writing it because he's hearing that they're they're introducing something into the gospel that doesn't belong there. They're adding something to it. Paul will reserve his most harshest language for this letter as he writes to these churches in Galatia. Page 1809, Galatians chapter 1, I'd like you to... Uh, Follow along as I read starting in verse 6. Listen to what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And are turning to a different, what's your Bible say? A different gospel. Which is really no gospel at all. All right, so everybody understands the problem? Everybody see what they're doing? They're turning from the one who called them, that's God the Father. They're turning to a different set of beliefs that aren't good news at all. That's what gospel means. It means good news. This isn't even good news at all, Paul will say. Let's see how that's happening. He says in verse 7 in the middle, Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. What does pervert mean? A perversion. It, it simply means taking something that is good. Something that God created to be good. Like the gospel. The good news. And twisting it. And changing it. Such that it loses the quality of being good. He says this is what's happening. There are people that you are listening to who are taking things extra from God's word, bringing them in to God's word, and therefore perverting God's word, so that you no longer have the gospel. Now, I think we're all on track with this the severity of this, but I want you to see what he says next. this is all hard. This is going to be a little difficult for some people to handle. Verse eight. Look what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven. Should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. The Latin for this is anathema, it means cast into hell forever. He's, put, he's putting himself and his companions on the same line there. He, even if we, if we should come and preach something different. Because remember, it's not our word. It's God's word that matters. So if we change the gospel, we ought to be condemned to hell. Then he goes a step higher, right? Well, what, what, if it's, what if it's an angel? Now, who would be um, glad they came to church today if an angel showed up here? That would be something, right? We'd put that on Facebook, right? Yeah. An, an angel shows up in church... Paul says, look, even if an angel shows up in all of its might, glory, and power and preaches to you a gospel different than the true gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Paul is so concerned about this. He uses such harsh language and he repeats himself. Look look at the Bible, verse 9. As we have already said, so now I say again. Any any parents in the church today? Anyone have to repeat something to your kids, right? Yeah. Look, if you didn't hear me the first time, let me be clear so you understand. That's what Paul's doing right now. He's he's trying to get them to hear him. We'll say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. I I want you to fast forward in Galatians to chapter 3. Just flip the page over. Chapter three, because he's going to pick up here with the same <coughs> same argument, but he's going to get into the thick of it now. I want you to catch the I want you to catch the point here and how this relates to our study for this morning. He says, "You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by?" He's going to give two options here. Ready? So did you, and by receive the Spirit, he means get saved. Did you get saved by, number one, observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it is really for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you remember that this morning? Bonnie, you read it for us. Uh, If you're marking in your Bible, you might just write Genesis chapter 15, 1 through 6. That's the story. God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to give you a child, descendants, as numerous as the stars. If you could count them, your descendants will be that numerous. Now, Abraham's an old guy. How would you do? Would you believe? Come on. Like 90 years old, Abraham says. There's no way. And yet verse 6 says, Abraham believed. And the Bible says, God credited, credited that to him as righteous. Paul quotes that here, right? He uses Abraham as the example. He believed, verse 6, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law. I'm going to say that again. No one is justified before God by the law. Because the righteous will live by faith. Martin Luther uh, went through a spiritual journey of his own as he uh, desired in his heart of hearts to yield his life over to God. He struggled with how God should be understood. By his own writing, Martin Luther will confess that he hated God. He believed that God was a, a just God who was so full of himself... That without giving you puny humans a chance, he would condemn you to hell. Because Martin Luther misunderstood what the righteousness of God meant. He misunderstood it his whole life until he read Romans chapter 1 verse 17. So let's turn there and let's see what it was Martin Luther saw that changed his heart and changed his mind about God. Romans chapter 1 verse 17 Very simply is this, for in the gospel, you might understand so far, this is exactly the same thing Paul is fighting for in Galatians, right? The gospel, Paul writes here, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, or your Bible might say from faith to faith. Just as it is written, and look at this, the same quote, the righteous will live by faith. Martin Luther read this, and he said that it was like the gates of heaven flung open for him, that he understood that righteousness comes to him not by any good that he can do. It doesn't depend on you. But God declares you righteous by virtue of what God has done. Do you see the difference there in the verb tense? It's not what you do. It's what God has what? It's what God has done. Church, that is the gospel. Righteousness comes through this gospel. Such that you have been offered a way to God. Not by merit of your own. Not by works of your own. But rather by what Jesus Christ has done for you. It is a free gift offered to you. Now I'm going to try to move a little bit quicker through this. And I want to bring you into these five points of the Reformation. They're called solas. And that's the key word. All right? So the key word here is sola. And the first one is sola fide. Which means faith alone. It's as simple as that. It means faith alone. As the Roman Catholic Church looked at these passages. Even the one in Romans chapter 1. They came to this word uh, Justification. And justification in the Latin comes from a word, uh, usificare, and it simply means to make righteous. To make righteous, or to be made righteous. The reformers, like John Calvin, like Martin Luther, instead of looking at the Latin word, instead they look at the Greek word for justification. It's a word, diakosune. And instead of meaning made righteous, it means declared righteous. Anyone see the difference between these two words and the meanings that they have? What's the difference between made righteous and declared righteous? Unfortunately, the problem of understanding it in the Latin led to a series of practices that were bound up in the traditionalism of religion, such that the Catholics understood that you are made righteous ex opere operato. That's Latin that simply means by the working of the act. Or by the performance of the act. Does anyone know what the act is? What, what is it that they do in the Catholic Church? To join the Catholic Church? To be made just in the Catholic Church? Anybody know? It's, it's one of their sacraments. It's the way that you start. It's through baptism. It's through baptism. And what they understand is that the, the work and the sacrament of baptism causes an, and this is the word they use, an infusion of, of grace into the life of the individual. So that justification now comes by the performance of the work. And for them, baptism requires faith and works. The Catholic Church won't have a problem with faith. In fact, you could go to any Roman Catholic and they'll tell you this very simply, that faith is a requirement for salvation. You have to have faith. They believe that it's infused, however, through something that's added to this. So the problem isn't the word faith. What's the problem? It's a different word. It's the word alone. That's where they have the problem. So the Catholic Church understands that you find justification not just through faith, though faith is necessary, it isn't sufficient. You need something else to come, namely your work through baptism so that grace now and faith becomes infused into the child through opere operando, through the work that has been performed. Here's the problem with that. If your, hear me now, if your justification is bound by this synchristic form, the sacerdotal, that's simply a word that means grace coming through the sacraments. If it's performed through a work, it can be lost through a work. They know this. They understand this. In fact, they've come to understand a segmentism within sins by which they understand the way in which you could lose your justification. Rome would believe this. A person can have faith and yet be damned to hell. Does that make any sense to you? How is it that you can have faith? Just like Abraham, where God says that you're justified, you are made righteous by your faith, they'll say you can have faith, but you can be damned to hell. You can lose your justification by mortal sin. They have two classifications of sin, a mortal sin and a venial sin. Uh, venial sins are those that happen all the time to us. We don't even <laughs> aren't aware of them sometimes. But other sins... Sins that you know that you're doing. High-handed sins against God. They're called mortal sins. John Calvin will say this. He'll redefine it for the Catholic Church. He'll say simply that all sin is mortal sin. All sin is categorically weighty enough to send you where? To send you directly to hell. And then John Calvin will say this. No sin is mortal sin. In that you can sin and undo what God has done in the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the outpouring of grace through your faith. The Catholic Church will say that you could lose your standing of justification, even though you have faith, through a type of sin. Do you know they have an answer for this then? Does anyone know another one of the sacraments of the Catholic Church? What do you do? You've been a bad boy or a bad girl, right? So what do you do? So confession is part of it. It's a larger sacrament that they call penance. Maybe you've heard that before. Penance. Right? And so penance could be involved in some very simple manners. Right? By confessing your sins or by saying so many Hail Marys or so many Our Fathers. And if you do it, and they make this point, though, you can't just do it. That won't count. Even the Catholics know. That, that just doing it as a work isn't enough. It needs to be done from a contrite heart. It has to be genuinely meant by the, uh, by the sinner. But if you do that enough, you will undo in conformity to your sin and thus work your way back into a right standing with God, a justified standing with God. They will say that even if you commit venial sins... You still, however, may upon your death find yourself not at the gates of heaven, but somewhere else. So let's say you're not bad enough for hell, right? No mortal sin, but let's say you haven't done enough penance on earth. Where do you go? Anyone know? You go to purgatory. Purgatory is this place intermediate between heaven and earth where for however many hundreds of thousands of years you will undergo suffering such that you will need to make restitution for your sins. Why do, why do, where does this come from? Does this seem like a mess to anybody else? I, I, I have to tell you this. You and I are amongst the most sorry of, of all people on earth if this is how it works. For your justification depends on you. And if you don't get it done in this life, you will have many years to burn in purgatory and therefore find satisfaction for your sins before you can enter the glory of God for no sin can come before the presence of God Almighty. If you take away that one little word, sola, Do you see why this is worth dying for? If you change this, you change everything. The doctrine of justification by faith. It's the linchpin. It's the hinge on which the church either stands or the church falls. It is by faith alone. The second one is sologratia, which means grace alone. Uh, you might understand grace uh, defined as God's unmerited favor. That's a really good definition. Unmerited means you do nothing to deserve it. Paul writes this in Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the king of the air, the spirit who is now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. How did he start out describing you? What were you? What does a dead person do? Nothing. Nothing. You merit nothing to your salvation. It is not by, you remember recess, picking teams for kickball? Anyone remember that? I remember that, right? And who did you want on your team? You wanted the one who was the best, right? The the one who could offer the most to your uh, uh, victory in the game. That's not how God chooses you. He chooses you when you are dead. You have nothing to offer God. Therefore, salvation does not come by your merit such that you are the squeakiest, cleanest of everyone at grace today. You aren't the best of the bunch, the cream of the crop. No, instead, you have nothing to offer. The playing field is equal amongst all people. I don't care where you came from, who your parents were, how much money you make, what job you have. You are all dead in your transgressions and sins. And God, without your merit, comes to you and makes us alive. The Catholic Church, however, sees that there's a difference. That instead you come to God both with grace of God, because they'll say that the grace of God needs to be there, but also it's meritorious upon your faith. The word for this is called synergism. I only say that, so if you want to study this more, you can look it up. Synergism (coughs) is the working of the two, so that by your merit and by the grace of God, they work in tandem to work for us justification. The opposite of synergism is monergism. And the Catholic Church recognizes that there are two forms of merit. One called condign merit and another called congruous merit. Condign merit is the kind where it is so good. What you did was so above and beyond that God would be unjust if he didn't reward you. Now, there are some in the Catholic Church who have been made into saints. And for them, they have achieved above and beyond what they need to get into heaven. Right? Imagine, imagine two scales. right? So that to get into heaven, you've got to have enough right, to overbalance the bad in your life. Catholic Church will see this as done by the grace of God. Remember, they see grace as necessary, but not sufficient in and of itself. So that you need grace, but you also need your merit mixed in with it, synergistically working to earn your justification. Some people go above and beyond. That's called condign merit. And for those saints, they will say that there is in an abundance of merit, a storehouse, a first national bank, if you will, of merit that could be dispensed to the saints. In Luther's day, this was found in application of something called an indulgence. So that if you want to get out of purgatory early, you could spend a little bit of cash and buy an indulgence because who is it on earth that controls the vault of the First National Bank of Merit? Do you know who it is for the Catholic Church? It's the Pope. And if the Pope says it, so be it. And Luther looked and he saw the... The way in which this is a type of antichrist. It's not grace alone. It's not Christ alone. Now here is a man standing in the place. Where God alone would give loving grace. Not based upon what you would pay. Not based upon what you would earn. But simply by his love. It's one main point within his 95 theses. So we hold to this. It's, It's good that there's grace. The Catholic Roman church would say that they need grace as well. The problem is the word what? Alone. Next is called solus Christus, means Christ alone. Bonnie helped us with this again this morning from John chapter 14. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except how? Except through me. Salvation by faith or justification by faith is simply a shorthand way of saying justification comes by faith in who? Christ alone there's a second application of this that is found within the church. And it comes in this idea of mediator. How do you you come to God? Say, through Christ. How do you come to God? Through Through Christ. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church, as much as they believe this is true, is going to understand there is still an earthly office set up in the church for they incorrectly think Matthew 16 means that the kingdom, or the keys to the kingdom of heaven is handed to the Catholic church. In the sense that they are authoritative. Such that you need to come to God through the office of a priest. You don't. There is one high priest through whom you come. And his name is what? His name is Jesus Christ. They believe you need Christ. They believe you need faith, you need grace, you need Christ. The problem here is the word alone. Two more. Sola Scriptura simply means the scriptures alone. Uh, that the infallibility of the Pope when he sits ex cathedra in the chair holds not a flame to the inspiration of God's word through the Holy Spirit. Scripture alone. It's not what you think about Scripture, it's what it says. It's not how you feel about Scripture, it's what it says through the Scriptures alone, whether we like it or not. Martin Luther says this, as he's put uh, before um, the emperor at the Diet of Worms. he's on trial for his life, and after trying to give explanation as to why he will not recant and burn his writings, they say, look, we don't want you to come at us with horns. That's the way they would say, don't come at us with horns. You guys know what that means, like, wrangling with us. We want a simple answer. And so he replies, since you want a simple answer, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils as they have often contradicted each other, my conscience is held captive to what? To the Word of God alone. I cannot And I will not recant. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. The Protestant church holds that our authority is not the church. The church's authority is the scripture's. It's why I preach from the word of God. And nothing else. Number five. And lastly. Solo de gloria means simply to the glory of God alone. Unfortunately, that the practice of having to derive merit means that we esteem those who have championed for us merit. In fact, that was November 1st. Does anyone know what that day is called? Yeah, in the Catholic tradition, All Saints Day. I'm sorry, there's no glory that belongs to any man or woman. Mary played a very important role on this earth. Her title of Theotokos, meaning God-Bearer, was her treasure, but she was as sinful as any of the rest of us, in need of redemption. And so were all the other saints. Glory is not shared, for our God is a jealous God, and all that we do and all that we say, and any result of our praise goes to who? The glory of who? The glory of God alone. And so here's the problem. It's a little bit of a mathematical um, equational problem. The Catholic Church sees this: that your faith plus your works equal your justification. And what we celebrate today is 500 years of a freedom from this distortion of the gospel, that we would reclaim the true gospel. That really faith and faith alone results in justification plus our works. I, I, just for sake of time, I won't get into all of it, and I think that we're fairly aware of this, that when the book of James says, show me your faith and I'll show you my works, what he means is that works are the evidence of genuine faith. So that the person who is genuinely saved, I belong to Jesus Christ, they will long to please God. Even like Jesus says in John 14 through 17, that if you love me, you will obey me. You will do what it is I have called you to do. And so I have an asterisk here on faith because that faith is unique. It means what kind of faith? A faith by grace alone, by Christ alone, found in the scriptures alone. To the glory of God, say it with me, alone. Your faith and your faith alone is justification. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I want to make sure we give time to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. So I'm fighting this urge to just preach another hour on this, but (laughs) I want you to know that there is no doctrine more central to your faith than the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so I want to leave you this morning with this question. Upon whose righteousness are you depending? If you think by coming to prayer meeting or, or volunteering at the food pantry or singing in the choir is earning for you any kind of merit before God, you have placed your chips on the wrong bet. You got your eggs in the wrong basket. I don't know how many other metaphors I could come up with, but you need to bank not upon your righteousness, but you need to hold firmly with both hands to the righteousness of Christ. He and He alone has provided satisfaction for the sins of the world, for yours, past, present, and future. And when you hold to that true gospel, you will have the freedom to declare the praise and the thanksgiving and the worship to God alone. Amen. (laughs)